Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Max Cooper. Cooper received a PhD in computational biology, but he ended up fusing his passion for science into his new life as a producer. He shot to prominence with a series of 12 inches on Trauman Fields, but he's recently come full circle with a project called Emergence. Cooper's fascinated by how small forces interact to create complex phenomena, and he took apart the process of translating this into music with Holly Dicker in RA's London office. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The exchange with Max Cooper is up next. At its most basic, your current project emergence is about your three interests coming together, which are science, music and visual art. So I wanted to know really how these three evolved, starting mainly with, well, I guess my first question is, which one came first? I mean, it, it was science that came first as far as I remember. Well, I think science was the first thing where I sort of started applying myself to it and finding finding it really interesting. Music and art was always there in the background. My mum was a music teacher. I went to a Steiner school, which is a sort of more like art's best curriculum for education. So I was very much, from a very young age, always encouraged to do lots of different arts and express myself in that way. So, and music was always there in the background. Uh, every day I come home and my, in the background, my mum would be teaching piano. So that was always just going on. I guess subconsciously, science and and sorry, the, the music and the art side was, was there, but the science thing was, I guess, I, I started finding interesting books that I would get lost in and, you know, thinking, you know, these ideas were really interesting. And, and just, you know, it was something it was something that I thought that I'd probably, you know, do as a job, which I sort of then pursued throughout school and, you know, as that went on. And are we talking about um, science fiction books or sort of academic no, no, textbooks? No, it no, was, it was more like popular science, you know, books written by researchers. So, you know physics and math books and some you know philosophy stuff and that just interesting unusual ideas 
or things that grabbed me. Were you a bit of a nerdy, nerdy child? Not really, no. I still was very much into like normal laddie stuff, you know, like sports and being naughty, that sort of thing. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't totally like I was. I wasn't the traditional sort of nerd. But I think also my school was like quite small. They didn't really have that sort of that clique sort of dynamic between different because there was only like twenty people in each year. So it really was like there wasn't enough people to have a sort of sort of do these different groups. And I found it quite strange when I went to a bigger school for like sixth year when like, there was suddenly this dynamic of all this, you know, these different sort of groups and, you know, politics, school politics and that whole thing I never hadn't really ever experienced before. And I hated it. You know, it was it was something that I didn't. And it's still something I'm not into. You know, I just try and judge people by their own merits and you know, try and ignore any of this of the politics of social situations politics yeah you mentioned your mum was a music teacher what was what was your dad doing i mean where did the science the love of science come from yeah he's he's well it was he's retired now he was an engineer so he was very much like he was quite a yeah logical sort of old school dad type of person you know that sort of but then my mum encouraged me she would give me these sort of these books and you know these things to read and and they both encouraged that side Mm -hmm. Did you learn the piano as well as a child? No, no, I should have done. I wish I had, you know, I've had to sort of self-teach myself to play the piano very badly and just in the, in the you know, for years and years of writing music, I wish I'd learnt it. But again, going back to, I think probably wouldn't have been the coolest thing, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I didn't want my mum teaching me piano. It was more like I wanted to go and, yeah. you know, do laddie, do Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do, do things that young boys, you know, do. They don't want to have their mom teaching the piano, you know, Absolutely. even though it would have been a great thing now. Okay. So when did your music passion sort of start to form? You started DJing, but when sort of when did... Yeah, I mean, that... so I guess there was, there was definitely another family connection. My sister was really into like, she she's five years older. She was really into, you know, electronic music and clubs. And she, she used to have all the old like sort of classic synth pop stuff on tapes. And I used to, that was the, some of the early music that really grabbed me, this sort of you know, Depeche Mode and New Order and all, you know, that whole sort of, the sort of golden era of, you know, the birth of electronic music. That always appealed to me. And then when I started, I think my first gig, I was what I went out to, I think it was a Prodigy gig when I was about 16 or something. And then soon after that, I started going to clubs and that's when it all, you know, the obsession began when I realised how much fun clubs were and electronic music and it's in that environment. And then I started DJing very much, you know, following the standard path of, you know, getting into clubs and then wanted to DJ and then, you know. What sort of records were you picking up at this time? Was were, quite you, were you collecting records? Yeah, well? yeah, yeah, yeah. I went through all sorts of different phases. I pretty much tried DJing everything almost. It was like, you know, there was a sort of early stages of like trance music and stuff and rave and then there was like, you know, I got into the drum and bass and then I, there was like even a hip-hop phase where I was like playing, <laughs> playing hip-hop clubs, which seems unusual from what I do now but but I, I took you know I took sort of influences from all those things and I still think they you know influence you know what I do now in my music I very much have a love for a lot of different genres of music and I try to bring that together as much as I can well I mean you're still sort of including drum and bass into mixes that you're making now yeah was it you were mixing all sorts of different things or were you going through phases like did you have your drum and bass there was, phase yeah or? I definitely I had phases <laughs> Yeah. But then I would also always, whatever phase I was in, I was always introducing, you know, other things. And one of the early problems I had DJing was that promoters would complain, you know, I'd give them my mixtape or whatever, or 
later on my mix CD, and they would they would say, you know, it was really good, but we don't know where to put you, you know, because I didn't just play one thing, and then they, and that was, that made it difficult for people to figure out how to put me into a lineup, or that they would worry that I would play something really weird if they put me, you know, there, there was always that issue. They um, didn't know what to do with you, and you're a bit volatile, and we, they couldn't judge what you would play. So yeah, I mean that's the problem. So much music is electronic music in particular is so sort of boxed in. You know, like people are expected to play such a narrow range of sort of things. It just sort of stifles creativity in a bit. You know, you, it's hard if you have to work within a small box. If you make the box too big, it becomes difficult. You know, but I certainly felt that I didn't want to pigeonhole myself in that way too much and it's the same with my productions I, i've made an effort you know there's been times in the past where i felt like i was being pigeonholed into a certain scene or something and, and that's when i've actually pushed back and just released something that's really different and everyone's like what's this shit <laughs> it pisses people off but at the same time it, it pushes the the walls out a bit you know so my my creative space is yeah i can maintain enough so, so that i can actually experiment a bit and just so that i don't get too stuck you know i don't want to because it gets boring for me as much as anything else if I'm too stuck in in one thing. So what sort of gigs did you end up playing in this early phase? <laughs> All sorts. I did oh, you know, I did I did my I did my time of dreadful gigs, you know. I loved the whole idea of DJing. I found it really exciting and I, you know, was, after the first few times I did it, I was like, well, this, you know, this is amazing. I need to do more of this." So at that point I was you know, experimenting with different things and you know, making different mixtapes and giving them to all the sorts of you know, different places just to see where I, you know, I, I would take all sorts of different types of gigs. And it was similar actually with when I started getting into music production as well. I really tried my hand at a lot of different things and was sort of trying to find. I think it was a, this sort of almost like I was trying to find who I was. It's like I, I feel a bit like with music that the best music comes whenever you're able to take a little bit of yourself and you know put it out there into the world. You're just like you're trying to extract yourself out musically uh, and you can do that much better when you find who you are uh, you know and find your musical identity so there was always that process of just experimenting i suppose yeah speaking of experimenting um i wanted to just pick up quickly on the the scratch dj turntablism mm. phase how long were you in this phase for and what led you to sort of that was actually my one of my earlier obsessions i've always worked hard you know that was one of the, something since I was a kid you know I was I worked hard at science or whatever I, I I think I at some point when I was really young I sort of thought I realized okay if I want to do something with my life then I have to work hard at something so it was like okay I need to find things that I'm happy to work hard at so that was you know at one point when I started DJing I was like okay I can work hard you know I want to do this I, I can work hard I can you know listen to music but there's a limit to how many records I can buy, I can't have, don't have that much money, you know, it's not like I can go and buy loads of records, but and at that point there was a limit to how much you could listen to, you have to go to the record shop. And So I was like, how can I apply myself? And the sort of whole turntablism thing was one way that I could spend, you know, hours and hours and hours practicing and learning something which would then aid my, you know, yeah. getting gigs and pushing that career thing forward. So that was one of the early things which I set my mind to. And then at some point later down the line I realised that actually... I had to write music really to make a career out of it. it would, I would need to focus on production. But yeah, the turntables and thing was fun though. I keep thinking I want to at some point bring it back in. The problem is it's so all the classic hip hop samples are so sort of cheesy and sort of, you know, <laughs> I can't use them, but I'm, I'm toying with some different ways of being able to use the, the techniques, but yeah. for MIDI controls and for you know, the audio visual stuff and how I can bring, because I can, I can still do a lot of the, you know, the turntable stuff. And it's just, I'm just trying to figure out how I can 
bring it do back it in, in a more interesting yeah. way basically rather than the classic hip-hop sort of thing did you do any like competitions or something with this yeah i did one dj competition where i was doing all of the you know the juggling beat juggling and all that stuff and yeah, yeah it was it was pretty fun but no i i think you know before i pushed down that route well i realized that the turntables turntablism thing was sort of on the way down and really all the new people coming through that you know, were producers mm. that was probably i don't know 2004 2005 something like around that sort of time because the turntablism thing i think had its peak probably in the in the 90s maybe um, things changed and I realised that was happening so I, I sort of changed direction as well Yeah, into productions I suppose Yeah, yeah. it's funny I mean, the production thing, it started as just because I wanted to you know, I was really into DJing and I wanted to do more of it and I thought, oh that's a good route but then as soon as I started you know, delving into the production I started realising that there were so many connections to the science work you know, I was doing and, and, and how that it was such you know, I could apply myself in a much more uh, complete way turntablism is a very you know particular sort of application you know, it's a bit like you know it's play, like playing an instrument mm. you have to just repetitively do the same thing over and over and and drill it into your subconscious and so you know i mean so you have to practice yeah exactly you have to practice loads whereas production requires a lot of practice to train your ears but there's also a whole side to production which is more about uh, learning different techniques for experimentation and just wider it's much more related to other like academic sort of work mm-hmm. so when I realised that I realised how fun it was and how rewarding it was then pretty quickly the whole turntablism thing sort of fell by the wayside and I was applying myself to you know music production for years like obsessing about that but you were sort of doing this on the side as it were whilst studying yeah for a PhD I was spending too much time making music and not enough time doing my PhD. Is that how like, it worked? <laughs> yeah, well, the good, the good thing about doing your own research is that it's all about the results. It's not like you you have to work a certain you know time for it, like nine to five or whatever. It's like if you're making good results and you can publish them and, you know, that's the, the key thing. Mm-hmm. And luckily for me, I had a great supervisor and had a really interesting project and it, it, there was all sorts of interesting results that were coming and it, that side was, you know, so I had the flexibility then to spend more time, you know, writing music and and the PhD was, you know, still was ticking along really nicely. So that that went really well, and it was very enjoyable. Did you go to get a postgraduate degree first, and then yeah, like there was yeah, a yeah, tier yeah, of, yeah. So I did learning. the you know, undergrad, and then I did like masters, and then I did the PhD. What led you to that first decision of okay, I'm going to go and uh, take science at, at university? I think after eight, I did all sciences for A levels, mm-hmm. and that was again at that point. That's what the assumption was that I would do, be a scientist of some sort, or you know, music was. I was doing spending. I was working really hard at it, but I never would say, "Yeah, I'm going to do this as a career," just because I knew that was pretty unrealistic. Mm. I thought it was always just like, "I'm going to work hard at this, and I'm going to assume that I'll be a scientist, but I'm also going to work hard at this other thing, and if that works out, then great, and if it doesn't, then that's fine because I'm happy doing this other thing." So, I didn't put all my eggs in one basket, mm-hmm. basically, until I'd taken both of them to the point where I literally couldn't go any further without putting all my eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. And that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to do music now. Okay. And then that was, whatever, seven, eight years ago or something. Okay. And um, what was the research project? Yeah, so the idea is that you know, inside every living cell, there's a computer algorithm, and that defines how the cell functions, how it responds to in- inputs. And that obviously has arisen through 
evolution and through chance and mutation. So the question was how how can these sort of things, these you know, complex algorithms arise you know from simpler building blocks? How can they learn to how they can evolve to do these complex tasks? So I was simulating that because it's something that happens over millions of years or billions of years. So it's not something you can test in the lab very easily. So that's why it's good for computer simulations. Mm-hmm. It's also very tied to this whole learning algorithms that are used you know, by Google Translate and a lot of new technologies where you can basically set a very complex task to a computer system and provide some sort of network that can then uh, rewire itself to you know, solve a complex task. And that's exactly what the cells were doing. You know, There's these networks of interactions of genes which evolved to do these gene expression patterns which control the cell. So that's what I was simulating and experimenting with just to learn more about it and just to make predictions which then could feed into experiments. People could test those predictions and just better understand how life works and how evolution works. Yeah. I mean, in terms of sort of these chaotic computer systems, it sort of reminds me how you create music yourself by I read somewhere that you sort of build these chaotic systems okay, yeah, using there's Ableton. So that's that's the Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that there's definitely that link. I mean I guess the link is that you know you're 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 building a system which figures out how to solve a problem and you don't actually know how it's done it. So that's the, one of the interesting things like when I was doing my research, you know, I would make the system and then it would evolve to solve the problem I set it. But I wouldn't actually know how it did it. You know, and then I would sort of be trying to then Untangle. There's a net. There's, there's this network of you know the, all these things regulating one another, and then trying to figure out what was going on. You know, how has this thing solved this problem? So it's it is a you know it's a learning algorithm. It teaches itself, and you know evolution and life does that. We're using those sort of techniques a lot now as well. And I also think those techniques are really important for you know for music production. I, I touch on them very much with setting up. The, yeah, as you as you mentioned, like in Ableton, I set up lots of parameters one regulating the other and lots of you know random you know randomizers on certain parameters or randomizers sometimes on hundreds of parameters so that the whole like that you get this sort of seething mess of you know changing um, you know whether it's synthesis or whether it's effects you know you just get this really detailed chaotic sort of audio system and I, and I set the boundaries so it's not it's only chaotic or it's only messy within a within the, you know, the realms that I want but it's messy enough to create lots of interesting effects, and then I, you know, I'll yeah, record those, and then I'll start a long process of editing and you know taking out the good bits. And it's linked to, to I guess yeah, you, it's well spotted. There's that. There's definitely that link to the to the research. I think that that technique can be applied, you know, huge a lot more. It's, I'm only scratching the surface, really. I mean, there's some people that use it to a much greater degree. Uh, there's a guy called Rob Clouth who's writing an album for Mesh, the, the label mm-hmm. that we, I released the last album on. Um, he he builds, you know, he writes his own software from scratch and, you know, uses a lot of these techniques and the results are, you know, the music speaks for itself. You know, it just yeah. if you want to have music that sounds different to everyone else, then you need te- techniques that are different. And if your techniques are radically different and, you know, you're building your own systems, then the music will also be radically different. So that's... It's something I'm experimenting with more at the moment. I'm working with some, you know, software developers and you know, actually starting from the ground up a bit more to try and find some new musical realms. Because I mean, that's the whole thing I mentioned earlier about being into the sort of golden era of synth pop, and and you know, that was it was pioneering the, then, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. It was like the synthesizer was something new. Mm. So whenever people, you know, people were like using synthesizers, and then they, you know, this music was totally new because they were using a totally new thing. 
it's almost that simple. You know, if you want to do something really new musically, one way of doing that is just to find a new technique. And that's sort of what I'm, I've been pushing towards over the years, but um, I'm, there are certainly people that do it to much more effect than, than I do. But um, I feel like it's these learning algorithms and using the computer as an extension of the mind and, and trying to building systems where you can actually put your aesthetic and something about you into the, into the computer system. That's the, the, you know, the, the areas where I feel like there's going to be the most potential for new forms of you know, artistic expression. So it's pretty exciting. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things in that world happening, and that's why I've started this label called Mesh to actually start collaborating with these people and thinking about these ideas and how music can relate to these wider areas of you know science or research and and, and just again the collaborators with the visual artists and just the arts in general. I feel like it's it's all really oriented around what computers can bring and what these types of new you know programming you know, approaches can bring. So I want to drag that right back to the beginning of your sort of music production process, where it began. So it sounds like it's become very complex. I wondered if it has always been complex or... I've always loved complexity. Like, I've always been drawn to it, you know, visually or in terms of music. It's just that, I don't know what it is. I like the idea that you can delve in as much as you want, you know, you can, and the more you delve in, the more you find. It's like there's all these hidden things in there. And that's what life's like, you know. That's, again, very much ties to my interests in nature and biology and that sort of background. The more you delve in, there's these intricate machines and then you delve into that and then there's another intricate machine within that intricate machine and it goes down and down, you know, and there's all these... It's just this nested, sort of, these nested systems. Musically, I'm always in search of that as well. But one thing I would add about that is that I also try and make a simple building block or... The tracks, a lot of them need to work in a club as well. You know, they'll have a strong kick drum and a snare and they'll have like, you know, a simple chord structure. And there's these, you can sort of listen on that level. You know, if you're in a club, you lose most of the detail in a club. So, you know, I have to build the tracks that work. They have these sort of punchy, simple elements, which, you know, are the the backbone. And then, the, and then again, slightly more complex element that's layered on and then a slightly more and a slightly more. And it's just that basically the, you, the better the system is, you have to listen, the more you'll find. And that's, that's the way I sort of, that's what I strive for musically. It should sound good on your iPhone, or it should sound good if you've got like a, a 7.1 surround sound system or something, you know. When you first started turning to production, what were you listening to or what were you, what music was inspiring you to make music at that point and what kind of music were you making? So when I first started writing music, yeah. So we're talking about what two thousand and four ish. Yeah, you're still... I first started. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was towards yeah around then. That was probably two thousand yeah two thousand three two thousand four. What was I listening to at that time? I was a resident of this techno night in Nottingham called Firefly, which was started in ninety nine by a good friend of mine, um, and they used to have it. Was always like you know Dave Clark and Ben Sims and you know Surgeon and all that stuff like. So I was very much, that was the first proper, you know, night that I had a you know, residency at. So were you playing so some banging tech I was, back but then? A little bit, but actually <laughs> I was more, I used to play warm-up all the time. Okay. And I used to play more like broken sort of beat stuff and, and a bit of techno, mm -hmm. but not the really, I was never into the really aggressive stuff. Okay. So I was the person that played the less aggressive stuff earlier and then it sort of Warm up on. the room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I did warm-up. I was the, for many years playing warm-up sets. So that I was sort of that was the scene I was immersed in to some extent. So I was certainly listening to that stuff. But then I was also listening to a lot of like 
I loved Grand Central Records, that sort of like, most like trip-hop sort of thing and M, Cold Water Music, that sort of chilled, you know, down-tempo-y sort of broken beat sort of stuff. And also like Electronica, I was really into like the more like ambient side of Electronica and some of the glitchy stuff as well. Like, like Venetian Snares, there was that classic Venetian Snares album, whose name I can never pronounce. It's like I, the, I don't want to pronounce it's it. It's like impossible. Do it well. um, but that, that, that sort of, I was really interested in that sort of fusion between you know, that electronic, the glitch sounds, electronic music and classical, because I was always, always into like ambient and sort of classical as well. Yeah. So there was all these things going on and there are things which I guess over the years I've tried to bring through. And then... At what point did music stop being a hobby? So you mentioned before that you sort of reached a point where you you had to make a decision, really. Yeah. Uh, what was that point? Um, that was the point where it was more that I was forced into it, really. I, I, I'd sort of done a postdoc for a year or so, and a short postdoc at UCL here after Nottingham. I did most of my studies in Nottingham University, uh, and I came to UCL. I was given a small grant in order to spend a year putting in applications for doing my own research. I wanted to continue my own thing. I didn't want to work for someone else. I was like, okay, I'm really interested in this. And the PhD had gone really well. And it was there was all these interesting ideas I wanted to explore. So I thought, okay, I want to do my own thing. So I, the way to do that is to put in grant applications to try and get you know funding to... So I spent a year putting these applications in and then I didn't get the funding. And then I was I didn't get it, no. I mean, if I had got it, I probably wouldn't be here now. So that was... It wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It was just, you know, that was the point where... I was like, okay, I've spent, I've just you know, spent a lot of effort, you know, and I didn't get my funding. And I said, do I really want to go and work for someone else, doing something, you know, something else, and not having control over my own, you know, research? And at that point, I thought, okay, I'm gonna, why don't I try? You know, the music thing it was, I was already quite deep into the production side of stuff by then, and starting to get a few releases. And I thought, maybe I'll just try this for a year or something. So I was like, okay, now I'm gonna try this full time. And then I managed to scrape by for a couple of years, basically until things started picking up. So there was a it was a tough there was a tough transition phase. But luckily for me there was a Labour government in power and they helped me with my uh my rent. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which probably wouldn't be the case now. So I had a business and I was like, okay, this is my business and then and, you know I was doing it properly and the government at that point were probably I, I don't know what the rules are. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be so supportive now. Mm-hmm. So that allowed me to spend a couple of years being very poor but being able to survive yeah. just to push the music thing push it and then after a few two or three years it started to like okay I can actually sort of pay my rent now and this is good and you know and then just building building from there so you mentioned earlier about developing your personality and finding yourself with your music I guess this is the the period where well an intensive period where you could really discover how to put yourself into your music I wondered whether the concepts were sort of in place at this point or were you making sort of just yeah. club music? So or? that's it. I mean, it started off very much, you know, I just want to make club music. I want to make club music. But one of the early labels I started work, working with called Tram Shell Platin from Cologne, mm-hmm. the label boss there, Riley Reinhold, he was one of the early people to sort of take me on and, you know, to help push me along by letting me remix the bigger artists on there and stuff. And he, he you know, encouraged me. He was like, you know, you should... Think about you know how you can link your science to your music and how you you can tie concepts together. He encouraged that, and that was you know the early stages of me starting to experiment with that, and also starting to work with video artists and thinking, okay, if we, how can we link these ideas together with visuals and 
So that was the early, early stages of a long process, which is still ongoing. You know, the longer it goes on, the more I'm finding, you know, able to link the two, well, the three interests together more and more tightly. But yeah, that's when it began. What was the first sort of project that you worked on where these these things really started coming together? <laughs> I'd probably have to look at the look at my discography to, to find out. <laughs> okay. The thing is, I've done so many releases. Yeah. I think um, the early releases on Charm, the Stochasti series and the other series releases, that was the early start. You know, I was thinking about ways of linking them and bringing it into the music, but it was sort of really... Compared to how I do it now, it was quite still more club focused, and I was experimenting with bringing random sounds in Stochastic series, for example, because the idea was to mix Stochasticities like sort of randomness and how I could bring that into the music. But it was it was very by the standards I apply now, it wasn't particularly adventurous, I suppose. It was still very much club music, and I was just starting to experiment with you know bringing these things in um, with the first album, Human. I brought it in much more strongly. And then again, with this re- more recent album, it's a whole, you know, again, it's even more, as I mentioned, it's like an ongoing thing. I'm learning more and experimenting with different ways of fusing things together. And it's just, yeah, it's an ongoing process, which will continue mm-hmm. until eventually I'll have my like big tune button. You know, it's like yeah. the system will be bi- built and all you need to do is just like press the big tune button and then it spits it out, you know, and then like... because that's that what people, the aim? Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's the ultimate aim, you know. Because some pe- people think that's... People think that I'm using, you know, I don't know, that science is like... I've made some system. Basically that, you know, I take the piss on going to say there's a big tune button. But I think there's that misunderstanding sometimes that, that the science is sort of making the music or something. It's certainly not like that, you know. At the moment, it's very much the science is informing the visuals and can often inform the creative process. It gives me interesting ideas, you know, to try something I wouldn't otherwise try. And so I'm trying to think about how can I map musical forms to these visual forms or these science ideas or whatever it is. And that makes me try lots of things which I wouldn't do otherwise. I'm also, yeah, there's some project, the project I'm working on at the moment, which is a bit more explicit, where we're actually building software to put fractal structures into musical structures. Again, that's, that's the, the direction I'm going more and more into how far can I push that? Mm-hmm. But certainly, I still ha- I certainly haven't got anywhere near my big tune button yet. Okay. Again, sort of pulling it back to your early setup, um, was it quite uh, simple? Uh, what what software Very much. were you, you using? Know, I didn't have any money, so yeah. it was like my crappy old laptop. I had to like get like a lunchbox and put in the freezer and then because the laptop would always overheat so I'd like okay. put this like fill, <laughs> yeah. put the lunchbox full of ice like and the laptop would sit on top of it to stop it overheating yeah. and then like my like speakers and that was it and for years I did everything just you know just digitally because that's what I could afford in the recent years I've started to you know slowly build up a collection of synthesizers and you know go more analog and have that you know add that sort of side to my sound but Certainly early on, it was really basic. One of the things I probably where I invested my money most or my time and my, my effort most as well was acoustics. So trying to actually get the room sounding decent, um, which is really important. And the video, music video work, I would invest into like paying video artists to, to start. That was something I was always really interested in and sort of wanted to push. As It was just something else I saw that I was passionate about, but also something that could set me apart from other people. So what was the big first video piece that you worked with or commissioned first one was 
Harmonic Siri, I think it was the first one, by Andy Whiskers FX. It was like this sort of abstract, like, roof scene turning into this mad symmetrical sort of trip. It was pretty, it was pretty fun. I mean, it didn't have, at that point, it wasn't really, I wasn't saying I want a video like this and that. It was more like, here's this tune and this is what I'm doing and like, what can you think of? And over the years, it's become much more, now actually, with the most recent album, for example, the whole thing was, it starts off as a visual story and I know what the chapters are and I'm making music for this chapter and I send the briefs to the video artist and say, I want this and this and I find people who can, you know, so it's very much more like I direct visually, but early on it was more just like, Finding someone you know who that you in, like, that, yeah, that a friend who you know could do something, and then this is what we can do, and just experimenting. Yeah, was it always as a video format an accompaniment to recorded material, or did videos feature you know in your live performances early on? No, no, I didn't. I didn't bring the videos into live performances for a while. I guess I was definitely influenced a lot by the whole Warp Records thing. I used to have this Warp Vision DVD. Because Warp were very much you know, one of the early labels to really push the visual thing as well. Sort of Cunningham, you know, Aphex Twin collaborations being some of the sort of seminal, you know, audiovisual or music video sort of pieces yeah. that really set the standards and still do. To some do you extent. have a favourite one? My favourite one's probably the Bjork, All the Full of Love, I think it's called, you know, the Cunningham, the, 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 the robots. And that's just, I mean, musically and visually, mm-hmm. it's just absolute masterpiece and it's still and it still looks unbelievable it's not you know yeah to yeah to pull that off i don't know what year it was made but yeah that's one of my all-time favorite sort of audiovisual mm. pieces and what about sort of audiovisual performances uh, have there been any influential ones that you can think of performances live performances yeah av performances yeah I guess Hextatic were doing stuff a lot back then, like early the earlier days, definitely. And Cold Cut as well. They were doing live, the, you know, audiovisual things, which I was really into. And then I'm trying to think what more recently. To be honest, I'm as much influenced by film. Koi and Esquatsi was one of my major influences early on. The you know the Philip Glass score and this Ron Frick sort of epic. Human, you know, civilization and you know these big topics portrayed, you know, without characters and just it was those early non-traditional narrative films like Coina Squatsy with the Philip Philip Glass score. It's a story of, I guess, life and and nature in in motion and you know systems. It's like looks at big you know natural systems and how they evolve and how they function and then human systems and it very much treats you know civilization and human systems as a as an abstracted entity, and it shows them in that by sometimes by speeding people up, so they're you know they're moving through the city really fast, and the city, the whole city, the dynamics of the city turns into this like it's like an ant's nest or something, and and um, it objectifies you know humans and, and society and life in that way, and by doing that, it shows us for what we really are, rather than being so lost, you know, we usually totally lost it within you know our human constructs, and it sort of brings us out of that. And it's just a really beautiful, and also shows the beauty of, of natural systems. So that film in particular was a big influence on me and continues to be. And then moving, you know, more recently, uh, Ron Frick's done, you know, he did, he did, you know, Baraka and Samsara and, you know, again, which are the same non-traditional narrative, you know, there's not characters or anything like that. It's more, there's, you know, music and, and visual and it tells a story and that's, 
very much how I've approached this, the emergence project and how I'm approaching my future projects going forward. So those were as much an influence on me as any live shows, you know. Yeah. Has this human element theme always been prevalent in your work and or what are sort of some of the main themes? Yeah, I think the main theme is that sort of human, the, fe- the feeling and sort of the emotive approach, you know, very much like I feel things strongly and that's the only tool I've ever used to write music really it's just I don't have training in music or anything it's more I just sit down and intuition and I say I just play around like does, how does this make me feel like what feeling am I trying to portray you know is it I'm, I've got maybe I've got an abstract concept that I'm thinking of toying with and what sort of feelings does that have or maybe it's an, a scene you know in what sort of feelings does that scene have and mm-hmm. I'm just trying to then it's then just match up the what's coming out of the speakers with how I feel and the result is that all my music, you know, obviously it's not a very accurate medium of translation. So some of the feeling I put in won't come across to the listener, but hopefully that's, there's that core, usually chord driven, you know, I love chords and chords make me feel things. I don't know why, it's just, they just do. So I think that's the core of, of you know, my music. And then it's that complemented with the ideas. And, and a lot of the time, the ideas, like tying back to what we were talking about earlier, a lot of the time, the, the sort of, Science, like science ideas, or the, you know, these more abstracted forms can take on the more detailing and the structure, and these, these. So you've got that core of feeling, and then you, sort of, and then that's dressed up with this, like, you know, whatever it is this glitchy detailing, and and or you know, sort of different types of shapes. I always think there's lots of ways of mapping visual scenes into music. Mm-hmm. I'm actually doing a project at the moment with a, a sculptor, where we're you know, mapping different types of sculptures into different musical forms and trying to. Think up. You know, there's the develop a language where you can you know, so translate between the two. So there's like there's there's visual mapping. So this is sort of like audio mapping. Yeah. Um, it's. I mean, you, you could th- if say you've got something with lots of smooth curves and 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 you know beautiful you know flat surfaces and you can make that musically. You know, you can make lots of smooth you know transitions and soft and rounded no- you know noises and things. And, and or you can make things really jaggedy and sharp. Or you can you can make things dark or you can make them light and there's, there's lots of ways of you know mapping sound to visual scenes and that's something which i've always been yeah which has always been interest hence the, the music video stuff yeah i think another really strong thing that's been there throughout is um a spatial awareness can you tell me where where this came from and you know, yeah, unwrap think, the psychoacoustics. Yeah, that's always been. I mean, there's a few links. I mean, psychoacoustics is a sort of you know area of psychology and an area of science. So there's that sort of link in terms of my interests in psychology and science and and how that can link to music. Psychoacoustics is one way of doing that. But then I think more importantly to me, it's just uh, I always want to sort of wrap, be wrapped up inside the music. You know, I always I have a lot of chords which are like and a lot of low frequencies that I use are really constant and they sort of these rumbling sort of soft warm sounds that go on too long basically and it's always an attempt to just you know wrap the listener up inside this abstracted space using psychoacoustics or or real you know surround sound systems which is more of the um you know the sort of physical way of doing it using those types of approaches allows me to wrap people up and create this abstracted space which you know people can explore so i, I think it's almost just a way of making the effect stronger. You know, it's like how I can make the message more powerful. Mm-hmm. And I, obviously I love like VR and that whole world because that adds a whole extra layer to that. You know, you can 
make the experience even more immersive, you know, with, with those sort of modern systems, which is something I'm toying with a lot and doing some projects with. But the psychoacoustics thing just naturally appeals to me. And it, it was something that from early on, I was always listening to music and getting frustrated with, I was like, how do they do that? How, when I listen to this piece, why does it feel so, why does it surround me, you know, and why doesn't my music sound like that? So that I just started learning about the different ways of, of doing that. And then I'm still learning and trying to bring them in. When did you start writing sort of these surround sound pieces or as I've seen them refer to as audio sculptures? Yeah, so the audio sculptures was is a particular project okay. where I literally set out to make abstract special structures of audio. Mm -hmm. So they weren't pieces of music, basically. It was like, it would just be like a weird sound that had a certain shape. Okay. Um, and I did that with this this thing called the 4D sound system, which is yeah. basically loads of speakers all over the room. There are there's 16 pillars, and there's three speakers within each pillar, and the roof is raised, and there's subs under the floor. So there's probably 60 or so speakers all through the space, and that allows you to make sounds appear to come from anywhere. They can come from above you, below. They can fly past, or and therefore you can make three-dimensional structures with sound. Mm -hmm. So the audio sculptures thing literally was audio sculptures. More widely, you know, I've done, yeah, lots of different types of surround sound shows, sometimes where it's just speakers on the edge of the room. And this Dolby Atmos thing I mentioned where it's using cinema, you know, because cinemas are set up for interesting sort of surround sound effects using techniques used in, in film for music. So there's a few different things I've experimented with. And yeah. how would you approach writing? I guess it would depend on what setup, but how would you approach writing a sort of three-dimensional piece of music? Well, that was the thing. Originally, you know, I started off with you know pieces of my own music for the 4D sound show and for the surround sound show, and I was then I had to think about okay, if this piece of music was a physical structure, what would it be? Mm. For some pieces, it was very easy um, because they, I already had that in mind. You know, what sort of physical structure they might be because I was already thinking in that language. So then it was just a matter of trying to map that physical structure into the into this real 3D system. But for the audio sculptures thing, I started from the other direction. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start with the the shape first mm -hmm. and I'm going to say I want to build this this structure how can I do that with sound you know and building the sound after and that was more effective because obviously I was starting primarily with the the physical experience as, as the, the, the starting point what does that actually mean like how so say for example <clears throat> one of the ones I did was like rain I want to have like the experience of yeah. thousands of raindrops and they're all falling all around you I thought that would suit the piece of music. Then it was just like, okay, here's my system. I've got every sound has a, you know, three coordinates for X, Y, and Z, you know, in the space. And then I can set up movements. And I want to set every sound can fall from, they're going to fall from above, you know, the roof. And they're going to come because you're setting these sort of imaginary spaces. You can have them falling from really high up. Mm. They're going to fall from really high up and then they come down and then they're going to make a little sound when they hit the ground. Okay. And you can set up, you know, that for one. And then I'm going to duplicate that, move it somewhere else and maybe make it fall slightly differently. And then, you know, and then you do that. Hundred times and you've got, or a thousand times and you've got all these thousands of little signs that are falling. Created and then you have built your your sort of rain. Thing is, you don't really actually hear a raindrop until it hits the ground. Usually, do you? So that's oh, okay. a bit of a cheat. But anyway, it gives you more of this interesting sort of. But that, that's an example anyway. Um, and do you can you factor in sort of the the person in this world and experiencing it? As in, yeah. So, so one of the really difficult things with making music in that way is that you have to make it sound okay from everywhere. And a lot of, I mean, it's almost impossible to do that. Mm. That's one of the really tough things. It's like, you can make something that sounds really interesting, but if you stand in the corner of the room, it might sound a bit rubbish. Yeah. So then 
the good thing about 4D sound is that you encourage people to walk around to actually interact with the music and walk through the sounds and find different ones and find which bits they like and don't like. But for the Dolby Atmos thing, for example, then people are in a cinema, so they can't walk around. Mm -hmm. So then the challenge is, okay, I want it to sound as spatial as possible and interesting, but it has to sound okay from every point. And usually it's the corners, the the far edges of the room, which are the most problematic because they're, they're sat close to one or other particular speakers. Mm -hmm. So if something's, you know, they'll obviously that those speakers will be louder. So then, you know, everything, you know, if, if things are, so it unbalances the space. To some degree, you have to accept that it's not going to sound perfect everywhere, but you, you have to think about, yeah, trying to make it as best you can. And generally there's a trade-off. The more spatial it is, the more it'll sound bad from certain points of the space. And, you know, again, with that in mind, I would set up some parts of the set where I know it's going to sound pretty good from everywhere, but they're not going to be as special. And then some parts which are really specialised, and I just accept that if someone's sat in a bad seat, then it's not going to sound so good, but hopefully they won't mind too much. <laughs> I really like how you applied this technique to um, a mix, which was the Science Eat Museum mix, um, where you, you mapped a journey through the... British Museum. Yeah, that was another. That was interesting. So I was set a task of making a mix, which was about a place. That was a whole different. Yeah, I mean that's another example. I totally forgot about that. That's another way. Just another interesting example of how thinking about things spatially or you know outside. You know how even just thinking about things outside of music and then applying it to music can lead to interesting results. So I thought, okay, I need to think of a space somewhere in London that I can visit and. Where do I like? And I love the, the British Museum. You know, the structure has got that old buildings and then that modern roof structure. And, and I thought, okay, that and also it sounds amazing in there. The, the, you know, because the sounds there's this big open space, but it's clo it's well, it's it's open in the sense that it's very big, but it's actually closed. You know, at all sides, but so the sounds bounce around. You get these long echoes and just really interesting. And there's also lots of people in there, like and they're eating lunch and their kids are screaming and there's all these things sort of life going on in the background. So I just started recording sounds in there. And that was the you know. The starting point and then I started thinking about oh, all the exhibits and all these ancient artifacts and things and I was like oh, maybe I can you know try and find some ancient music that you know from the same areas parts of the world as the artifacts and then as you go through the mix you know you find these different you know I'm using modern electronic music but then I'll layer over some like ancient Chinese you know instrumentation and, and, and then you that you find that part of the mix as you're finding that part of the museum and going around so yeah it was a, that was a really fun project yeah I, re I, I really enjoyed that I think this is a good point to ask about your binaural field recordings and your method, because yeah. I guess that's you applied it there. Yeah, and do a lot. You use it a lot. Yeah, I love. Yeah, yeah. So explain again, what so it this is. is psychoacoustics. Yeah. yeah, we're talking about. We mentioned psychoacoustics earlier. So basically, it's like when you listen to sound, your brain takes all sorts of signals from the sound coming into your ears, and those signals tell your brain whether sounds are coming from behind or in front, or whether they're moving or you know whether the, you know what type of space you're in in terms of what the walls are like and you know there's also how big the space is your, your brain processes all this information subconsciously and it gives you a feeling for you know the space around you from what you hear mm. um if you haven't um if you don't believe me then if you go on youtube and type like binaural hairdresser there's like this you can experience like and close your eyes put some decent headphones on mm -hmm. and you get to experience it's really freaky like a lot of people you don't realize how much information about their environment comes through you know what you're hearing yeah. 
but that that's that you know YouTube video is a great way of experiencing you know this freaky like you think your, your hair is getting chopped and like the I'm going to check that all out. Sorts. It's really fun. But you have to it's have good, headphones. You have to have headphones and close. It's a good trick for actually you know if you got friends over or something you know you've had a few <laughs> drinks and you're like you want to freak out your friends. Okay, <laughs> so you get good headphones and, and like make and force them to close their eyes. Promise they're going to close their eyes and make them listen through. It's, and it's fun. Okay. Um, that's a good demonstration for you know to check yourself, but. The point is that there's all this information that your brain takes from 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 hearing without you know without us being aware of it, and it's just you know psychoacoustics is you know the explanation of that. But then it can be used in music. So one way of using it is to actually go out into real spaces and record you know the sounds. So, but you have to record it from inside your ears. So the binaural microphones are microphones which sit right inside your ear canals. They're tiny little microphones, so that if a sound's coming from behind, it'll get It'll go through your bit of your skull and it'll go through your ear, and that will then affect how the you know, that that filtering of your physical structure of your head will get recorded into the you know into the audio, so that when someone listens back to it, it has that those signals in which tell their brain, oh, that's coming from behind, or that's, okay. and it gives much more of this full you know three dimensional spatial feeling. Mm-hmm. So that's one way of doing it, which I use a lot of that. I, often when I'm traveling, I'll just go around recording random sounds and. You know, and then I'll take them out, and sometimes I'll have whole, you know, like in that science museum thing where the intro is this whole um, sequence of that that courtyard in the British Museum. Sometimes I'll use you know layer that underneath just to give a subtle sort of speciality, mm-hmm. or sometimes I'll actually just take individual sounds, you know, like little, I don't know what it might be. Might, I might have a sound of a someone throwing, you know, like closing a bin lid or something. I don't know whatever it is, and I might use that as a as a drum sound, you know, for percussion. And, it, and that the fact that I've used a binaural sample will give it an interesting speciality. Actually, there's a track on the album called Cyclic on the Emergence album where I used a lot of sounds for the percussion from a building site. I was in my studio one day and there was this racket going on and I was like, what's going on out there? And I went to find out and it was this building site where they were putting these huge metal pillars in for building a wall or something. And it was, they had this huge machine to smash these bits of metal together and they made this mad sound. So I spent ages in there recording these sounds and then you know, making track, you know, making the percussion from them. And actually this this project I'm doing with a sculptor as well relies on that those techniques. I'm sort of clanging. He makes these big metallic sculptures and mm. I'm like clanging them and smashing them and doing all things with them. and then, Damaging his yeah, work. Yeah, exactly, his <laughs> priceless work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, and then using those sounds to then build, you know, use it for percussion especially. That's um, recorded binaural sound. The other side of things is simulated. You can actually get simple bits of software which will um, you know, emulate the binaural panning effect. So you can just, you know, have us you know, take whatever sound in your, you know, in your music software uh, and just put this plugin on and you can say with the plugin, you know, process this sound like it's coming from behind me and like by 78 degrees or something. And then it'll calculate how to, you know, change the sound to make it give the illusion that it's coming from that position. And that's quite, quite a strong effect. And you're using that. I well. use that a lot, yeah. So in, especially in the recent album and the recent productions, there's a lot of, if there's a sound in there which is clearly synthesized but has a very strange, like really pronounced sort of speciality, it's like really sounds like it's there, like, you know, as in I'm looking you know, to, to, you know, to the right of my head sort of thing, it really sounds like it feels like it's in a certain position, but it's clearly not a real sound, then it's probably using this type of simulated um, binaural effect. Okay. So before we finally jump into emergence i just wanted to ask are you still sort of doing air quotation marks normal dj sets or is it all very live and hybrid and experimental um yeah i do certainly do normal dj sets i still love 
you know clubs and parties. So if I'm if I'm booked to play in a techno club, you know, and it's I know, you know that's what it is, then that you know I'll play techno or whatever. You know, I have that side to me, but I also very much enjoy doing these more like surround sound or the visual shows, and a lot of them are more like playing like nine o'clock and, and you know sometimes they're sit down shows, things like that. I really enjoy that side of the work as well, and I'm pushing more and more in that direction. Mm-hmm. Club thing is still a lot of fun as well, so I, I definitely. You know, I like variety. It's, yeah. I like to be able to do different things. Because you recently did this, uh, the all night long tour. Yeah. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about that concept. Yeah. <laughs> Although it probably yeah, is I mean, what it says. Yeah, that it just, <laughs> it ties into this whole thing about the fact that I don't want to just play one thing, one genre. I love, you know, my post-classical and my ambient music and my glitch stuff and my down tempo and, you know, house and techno and drum and bass and all these different things. And that, allows me to play all of the things in one night you know because i'm really bad at playing short sets like because i always want to do too many different things and sometimes i try and cram too much in mm. so my worst sets are always like one hour like mm. i hate playing one hour sets at festivals it does my head in the all night thing just gives me six hours or seven or eight hours and then i can really spend the you know, i can spend the first hour playing ambient music and everyone sort of sits on the floor and chills out and stuff do and people then, actually sit down yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is this is nice and then by the end it's like you know like 180 bpm sort of like jungle and stuff and it's just it just and there's a smooth transition it's not like it goes from ambient to jungle obviously but you know (laughs) it's all about people standing up and sitting down exactly exactly it's all about just having enough time to work between these different things and explore ideas like that and that's just just yeah i mean everyone likes playing long sets don't they yes apparently i think they do you've got more to work with yeah you just got you've got a much bigger canvas to yeah to work with what sort of jungle would you be playing? What we've been playing a lot, of, like the classic old, I don't know, like old like Mickey Finn and stuff, and you know, they sort of like old. I've got a whole pile of these old like nineties like drum bass records. Were you um, playing and jungle records? Is really fun. Yeah, yeah, it's all the old stuff, pretty much like the nice. the nineties sort of stuff. So, do you still have a huge record collection, and you play vinyl? As yeah, well? I don't take my records with me to gigs mm-hmm. because they're too heavy and they get lost. So I've spent a bit of time recording old records onto digital format mm-hmm. so that I can play that stuff. Okay, so finally we're going to try and talk about emergence in as clear a way as possible because there's quite a lot of um, context to it. So maybe you can tell us where the, I, the seed for the idea came from because it's been quite a, quite a number of years in the making, right? Yeah, the seed came from my decision to do a live visual show. Mm-hmm. I'd been you know, I'd been spending a lot of time working with visual artists and, and eventually I thought, okay, I want to figure out how I can play the visuals myself and actually I'm really interested in this. I want to be able to perform with visuals and music mm-hmm. um, and actually control the visuals myself as well. So that was the sort of the seed. The other thing, the other core part of that would have been, you know, sci- my science interests and thinking, okay, how, how can I use my science in- interests to tell a you know, wide-ranging story and also, also linking back to those, you know, Nesquatsi and Baraka, these sort of those films, which I loved, and it was very much. I was like, I wanted to tell a story visually. I didn't want it to be just this stuff looks cool, you know. I wanted there to be meaning and and develop, you know, development throughout and messages and you know, and be able to, yeah, just present something more than just you know, stuff on the surface. 
So um, what started first? So you you basically wanted to make an AV set. Yeah. Did you have the music in mind first? Did you have the theory first? So the, the first thing was the idea emergence. Okay. So it was like I came came very quickly actually. I was just thinking I can't remember where it came from or but it was something it just seemed like an obvious choice of how I could present lots of different science ideas and how I could make a storyline. So the idea of emergence being that in science, you know, you have all these really simple reductive structures, you know, people sort of write these few letters on a blackboard or something and say, oh, this explains the universe, you know, and it's like three different symbols and some weird thing, you don't know what it says, but it's really simple, you know, mm. and it's that, how can something so simple explain the whole the complexity of the world we live in and everything? Mm. It seems ridiculous, but the reason it can is because, you know, emergence. So okay. the idea that you have really simple building blocks and those simple building blocks can, you know, iteratively through time you know they can interact with one another and they can give rise to other things and slightly more complex things and you know that can build and build and build and something really unexpected and beautiful can come from something really simple that's the idea of emergence but it also sort of points the finger at like a little bit at our maybe human stupidity a little bit which is nice because it's a bit like if we were cleverer, then it would be obvious that something really interesting would happen from these simple building blocks but we can't see that because we're you know humans and it's also interesting because it 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 goes a bit beyond the sort of dry side of science it's a bit mystical almost it's a bit like it somehow implies that you know these things that you can have something really simple and something really amazing can come from that and we don't necessarily know why or we can't really understand why and that goes beyond a bit beyond science you know it's like you know you could say consciousness perhaps is emergent you know it's like this amazing thing that no one really understands very well but we can understand these simple building blocks that give rise to it and how the brain works and stuff, but then we can't still understand the whole thing. That's interesting because it it sort of points the finger at science not being able to explain everything, perhaps. And there's that sort of more, you know, arty sort of that sort of the, it opens the door for these other other interests and other things to come in. And that was another reason why I thought it was an interesting topic to look at because mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be really dry. It's not supposed to be a science lecture or anything like that. I'm not. That's not what I do, you know. I'm just these. I find these ideas interesting, but I also find other things interesting. So it's just, and it seemed to it enveloped and incorporated lots of lots of angles which I could play with. How did this project begin? How did you start writing it? Were you making the music, or did you have visuals already in place? So it began by the concept, and then I the good the other good thing about the concept was I realised there was some videos I already had been working on which would fit into that story because I was already working on a lot of stuff which was, you know, related to nature and, you know, life and those videos and that work fitted perfectly already into this wider, you know, emergent story. So I already had some stuff that, you know, as soon as I come up with that, that would fit and that would fit and, you know, and that's great. So I've already got some stuff. And then it was just a matter of thinking about, you know, every chapter. So there's 25 chapters at the moment. Every chapter is a different sort of, sciencey related idea and a different part of that storyline the storyline which starts off with you know natural laws you know looking at really basic fundamental structures of nature which existed before you know the physical universe and then going into the, you know, the big bang and stars and then you know, planets and then later on early life and then evolution and humans and then you know society and dig- you know the digital age in the future it goes through this sort of like timeline this universe timeline one thing emerging from the other so did you have to plot this 
timeline and the chapters all first? Was it all like a lot of I, I, down, I mean, that story, that, that general timeline is the sort of the popular creation story of science, really. So okay. it's I didn't have to really think about too much about that. It was more just like just thinking about you know, which bits did I want to pick out to actually focus on and what would make a nice visual story and how I could how I could present it in a bit more... I wanted to present it differently from how it is elsewhere because mm -hmm. that story is often told in different formats. And I put a big focus on this pre-matter section, mm -hmm. as in I wanted to get done... Most most sort of emergence type of creation stories would start off with a Big Bang, you know, that's the thing. Whereas I, I put a lot of a lot of the stories pre-Big Bang. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to really delve down into what was... Because you can't just have a Big Bang from nothing, right? It's mm -hmm. like nothing if there was really was nothing before then it would have been nothing after yeah. there clearly was you know the, the, what was in place were natural laws you know there was systems things were already happening there was stuff that was already there it was but it wasn't you know what we what we sort of would call stuff you know it, was, right. it wasn't physical stuff you know it was like it was what underlies what's more fundamental than you know matter and time and these these physical things we're aware of and that's what i delved into a lot as a, as a you know for the story to make it different from those told elsewhere and did you do a lot of research um, or did you have a lot of this knowledge already? I read around a little bit, but no, it was, it was mainly stuff that was already in there, I suppose. But one of the interesting things was that by delving down certain ideas, even when I started working with visual artists and they started delivering some of the things I was asking for, then I would have more insight or I, would, I learned a lot from the actual interaction with the visual artists, mm -hmm. which is really interesting because it was almost like I was learning things about science by doing art, okay. which was which is a nice way, you know, backwards way of doing things. Going back to the, I guess, the core of your question, you know, I, I had you know, these all these different ideas in mind. And then, I, then I would just go and find, you know, I was trying to find visual artists that could deliver, you know, whose styles would fit different chapters that I wanted to tell. And then I would start chatting to them about it and sending them briefs and we'd go back and forth. And then Sometimes I would have music written for particular parts. You know, I thought I'd written a track. Oh, I think this would work for this part of the story, and I would send them the track. Sometimes they would start sending me some, you know, sketches and visual stuff and some draft video sequences, and then I would actually score. You know, I was actually writing the music to fit the visual. Can you maybe give us a, an example of a track that was built from a visual? Yeah. So one of the obvious ones was the part of the story about the human machine. So this was a sort of like the emergence of the human. Mm -hmm. And, the, you know, at every point in this emergence story, the idea is that we look at the systems and subsystems which are giving rise to that, you know, emergent property. So say the emergent thing is the human. Mm -hmm. Then we're looking at the subsystems and you know, that give rise to the human. So there's like, you know, the, the organs and the circulation and the lungs and the brain and these, and they're all, it's all, you know, this sort of infographic sort of depiction of, you know, how a human works and how these different, you know, these little mechanical things can give rise to this emergent, you know, property of the human. Mm -hmm. So that one, it was, you know, it was a really nice hand-drawn sort of comic-y feel to it and it had all these moving parts and I, and then I started building, you know, this sort of loopy sort of, this melody which sort of intertwined with itself in this, like it never had a start or, you know, it never had an ending. It was like these, because the, the, mel the melodies were, several melodies were different loop lengths mm -hmm. so there wasn't really a natural point where they would all overlap to finish okay. so it would give this like feeling of this ongoing sort of these systems like churning away churning away as, and, and also it was quite like friendly sort of because he it was like nice nice colorful hand-drawn feeling so musically it was sort of fairly fairly friendly if that's the way to put it 
so that was an example of where I was scoring to the to the visual. I really like what I think is the process that you use on order and chaos. Doesn't it start with um, you recorded rain? Yeah, that was a good. That's a good example of where the sort of science idea informed or drove the creative process to make me make, you know create a piece of music that I never would have done otherwise, and which was really interesting. Mm. With that one, I was trying to. It's really the process of emergence. You know, it's like how you can have something natural system that's churning away and then from that you get structure structure coming interesting structure and the way i did it was yeah i had it was really heavy rain one day and i was recording the rain drops hitting the window with my binaural mics again and then so obviously the sound of all these big raindrops is just random you know there is hitting the window all these random timings but they're quite well you know each raindrop is quite well defined sort of you know in terms of the audio you can hear a little click you know and it's quite and then it's spatial and they're suddenly they're hitting all around you which is a nice effect and then i was like okay i want to create a track from this in an emergent manner i want to create an emergent rhythm so also the track's called order from chaos which is the same thing so i just basically took the audio file and then marked the position of every raindrop and then took a drum grid so like someone a live drummer you know, would play the, the drums weren't in the track though but just the grid it's just the live drummer would play and, and you would also map the position of the drum hits mm-hmm. on a you know in time and then i would take those positions the positional information only not the actual drums and then for the raindrops whichever grid you know whichever drum hit they were closest to mm-hmm. they would sort of i could slowly push them towards that mm-hmm. so you're forcing the raindrops this randomness into this like struck this sort of gridded structure mm-hmm. But then the emphasis of what you know hits where is from the rain. So there's this, you know, which raindrops are louder is is defined by the rain. So you get this interesting, a rhythm comes, you know, slowly emerges out of chaos of the rain. That rhythm was the percussion which I then added. You know, I started building the percussion around that and built the whole track around that um, that process. Is there um, a composition off of the project that you really enjoyed making the most, or you have a, like a favourite? Because I feel like there was lots of different all sorts of different processes involved maybe mm. making each record each piece of music was totally different yeah i tried to sort of have themes of you know chord structures and melodies and that the idea of these sort of like la- layers of detailing so i tried to you know those there were those core themes of the feeling and the layered you know sort of big structures and then smaller ones and smaller ones and smaller ones that nested sort of detailing i tried to keep those core principles but then for each track, I would, yeah, I'd be using some different techniques to try and make them interesting. I don't know if I had a favourite. Maybe one th- one that was fun was a track called Waves. I was using a, this fun sort of randomising thing called Obscurium. It was like this piece of software which has a really complex modulation of synthesis, basically. And it was, it, it was able to spit out these loads of these quite electro-y sort of you know, it certainly isn't one of the more, it's one of the less serious tracks on there. It's sort of a fun, more fun sort of retro. I use these big retro synth sounds and stuff and, and it's almost a little bit disco-y or something. And it came from the, you know, from this interesting um, Obscurium plugin. That was fun and it was it was just fun because it's literally it's a fun sort of track. So I was feeling that, you know, I was you know, enjoying the process of making it, you know, and, and being able to, and then the visually as well, uh, Kevin McLaughlin, like he came up with this great idea of this sort of really strong, like retro looking visual way of 
creating waveforms you know visually and that really fit well with this sort of retro synth effect i'd gone for so that that was definitely one of the fun ones okay and was there one that was particularly challenging or you really challenged yourself yeah they were all challenging mm -hmm. um i spent a lot i spent a long time i don't some people you get these people that make a track in a day or some you know some electronic music producers they work really quickly i'm not it takes me a long time to make every piece of music so they were all challenging probably the ones which were the most challenging were maybe cyclic and actually not for very interesting reasons a lot of the time whenever a track's really challenging it's because you get bogged down in the mix and you can't quite get the structure right and it's yeah. like more these technical sort of pains okay um yeah okay so this clearly was a long process um so was it all based in the studio, it's all created, and at that point then you took it out live, or was it a matter of you were testing bits along the way? Yeah, no, it was on the early versions of the live show didn't have many of the album tracks in, as in the album, you know, the first time I did the visual show was like two or three years ago. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, I've been sort of developing, you know, what track would fit well where there, and, and it's been this very organic process mm -hmm. it, has, it wasn't it wasn't certainly wasn't like i wrote all the tracks first and then did the show and then yeah. it was very much like i used to use a lot of old tracks and i still do use some old tracks in the show so i started off you know with basic visuals and uh, and you know old tracks and some new bits but probably none of the album tracks at that point and then i started putting album tracks in so you know in the place of old tracks like I want a track that will do this job in, in, in the set and then, okay I need to write a track like that and then that became one of the album tracks and things like that so it was a messy process yeah but but good because I was able to keep and it's still developing that's the thing 